My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I call people make friends. I'm just trying to make a little money. My job is not just to entertain, but to these, like today into context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Everybody thought they could get out of the market and then jump right back in at the perfect moment once we started seeing some progress on the debt ceiling front. But when that actually happened last night, you barely got a chance. There was a very small window before stocks caught fire. Too small to put money to work, especially big money, which is precisely why we had such an amazing rally today with the Dow gaining 409 points, S&P putting up 1.19%, NASDAQ pole voting 1.28%. Too many people thought they'd get an all-clear signal and then be able to buy stocks at low prices, easy as pie. How about a pie in your face? As is so often the case, the break we got in the debt ceiling, it occurred after hours. A speaker who seemed more amenable to a deal and a president who blinked and cut short his trip to East Asia. They came together to produce an era, let's say, of relatively good feelings for now. But there was no opportunity to get in because stocks immediately roared in response, as they almost always do. Of course, we're talking about Washington here. Our politicians are great at posturing, but not so great at compromising. So there's certainly a chance they'll drop the ball in some sort of televised fit of peak. Everything could easily fall apart at the last minute, with the government having to adopt some emergency method of debt payment that crushes the stock market. I know that, and you know that. But man, at least both sides agree here. There's a framework. Now, if you're using the 2011 playbook, the last time we had such a bitter debt ceiling standoff, the agreement to create a framework was what ultimately led to an actual deal back then, even as both sides were very unhappy with it. A framework meant that the bout was running its course. Two prize fighters exhausted and willing to accept the white flag rather than keep struggling. Of course, as I've been reminding you forever, in the 2011 fiasco, where the market fell 19% from pink to trough... We thought we were in the clear with the debt ceiling deal, and then we got decked by a debt downgrade from the Standard & Poor's company that pummeled the whole market. That caused, yes, fears of a recession right in our face. Could that happen again? Sure. But it's unlikely because nothing's happened this time that didn't happen a dozen years ago. Either way, it's been dawning on people all day. Unless we get some sort of setback in the talks, a real possibility, then the buying opportunity may have come and gone. Now, I bring all this up because this is a teachable moment. This whole debt ceiling exercise shows you how investing really is so hard and why it's hard. First lesson, you always have to realize where you are versus the crowd. The crowd being where you don't want to be because when everybody's betting on the same thing, there's rarely much money to be made when you join them. And coming into this week, the crowd was extremely negative. There was more cash on the sidelines than any point since 2009. Hmm. Let's think about that. What happened in 2009? That was when we got the generational market bottom, the time when you had to buy everything. Because people hated stocks. The asset class looked as dead as I've ever seen it because of the Great Recession. We were worried about the fate of the republic, for heaven's sake. And maybe there'd be no banks left after they nationalized them. That was the worst part of the Great Recession. Right now, there's nothing close to that level of horrible. Yet the crash, cash positions are equal, a crash, and the same position is 
No, it's it's unfathomable. And and to think that there was less cash on the sidelines back in 2011, the last time we went through the debt ceiling nightmare, I was worried this time would be worse than 2011. But after today, it certainly seems like we're in better shape, and we're certainly better in shape than than 2009. Second lesson, when people get real negative, they're closed off to new ideas until their eyelids are pulled from their heads with pliers. Take Home Depot. The home improvement retailer reported what I thought was pretty decent quarter yesterday. Not great, but it was hampered by weather and a collapse in lumber prices. All reasonable. Weather is frequently dismissed as a bogus alibi. But California, where many of their stores are, was hit with torrential rains over a sustained period of time. And those storms crushed a huge percentage of Home Depot's most important sales. Now, there were plenty of people who acted like it was the end of the world for Home Depot and plenty of others who won't touch Home Depot because they're so worried about the residential real estate market. So the stock plummeted six points in yesterday's session. But students of the Great Orange know that what matters to their sales is the worth of a home. And did you know that there's been $15 trillion in increase in home values since 2019? That's incredible. Yes, this quarter and perhaps this year, People will spend more on travel and leisure than homes. We get that, right? I keep telling you that people are long on money and short on time. But houses need maintenance. They need refurbishment. Appliances go wrong. The housing center does not hold. So Home Depot sales will come back, and the stock gains 10 points. 10 points today, finishing well ahead of where it was yesterday uh, after the so-called bad loss. In the meantime, 3% yield, great balance sheet. Put me up. Same thing happened to Target this morning. You had an upside surprise, a genuine one, but people were too, way too fearful until they weren't. And the stock was down big at one point. Had a nice rally. Don't worry. As we told investing club members at our noon club call, you can still buy the stock of TJX, which had the best quarter of the entire group. You know, that off-price sector is so good. Now, if you want to know more, just go to the replay of today's monthly club call. It's real good. Join up by opening the camera on your phone, all right, and pointing it at the QR code that's right here. You won't be disappointed unless you don't know how to use a QR code, and then you got to go to the CNBC.com website. Third lesson, we had a half a dozen billionaires come on our network and give interviews in our, in our, in our in also other venues. And this is all I'd say within the last five days. And all they wanted to talk about was how everything is so awful and terrible, so, so. dangerous. <laughs> They're not just groaning about the debt ceiling. They ran about how stocks are overpriced and how the market is dangerous. They always hate the market, always. Well, I got to ask, is it more dangerous now, less dangerous, or are they just wrong? Now, if you want to understand the bad advice from the billionaires issue, it's nothing new. You need to go back in history to learn about what the first super wealthy Americans thought of the stock market before TV. I went to the House of Morgan in an amazing book by one of my favorite writers, Ron Chernow, to see how the Morgans invested in the 1800s. Smart guys. It was interesting. Junius Morgan, the father of J.P. Morgan, became one of the richest men on earth with a philosophy that boils down to it's not even worth talking about investing unless you know for certain you'll get your money back and more. He only wanted sure things, and stocks are not a sure thing. Today's billionaires aren't any different from Junius, except they have more ways to share this perspective with regular people than he did. These guys have no need to take any risk because you only need to get rich once. But unless you're super rich already, that perspective is meaningless to you. My, my words. These people, like Junius Morgan, are not here to help you make money. They are here to tell you they don't need risk because they have lots of money already. If if, if that's you, then fine. You certainly don't need the show. Me? I'm still trying to help 
make others help me. It's what I do. Finally, I want to remind people that you do not need to fret. The amazing thing about the market is that it always gives you opportunities. Heck, individual stocks, stocks like Caterpillar, gave you a chance this morning because very little of the $1.2 trillion in infrastructure spending has been given out yet. Or how about First Horizon? This bank is very, FHN is very familiar with viewers, all right? It's a bank that's doing fabulously. And yet its stock has lost more than half its value because a suitor was forced to drop its bid. First Horizon is so darn cheap, I buy it today. Bottom line. The answer to all these issues is hidden in plain sight, like Poe's purloin letter. Stay invested, but keep a nice chunk of cash to buy more into weakness. But if you haven't already put that cash to work at lower levels, you might want to leave some on the sidelines for the moment, wait for things to cool down, or how about buying some of the individual stocks I have said are still good, both in today's club call and just now. Keith in Wisconsin. Keith. Hi, Jim. It's great to talk to you again. Thank you for hey, I've got a, uh, I think what I've got is a uh, fairly high-class problem. The, uh, my biggest portion of my, my biggest holding in my portfolio is a, is a stock that you, you call a, uh, a, hold, uh, a don't trade it, hold it, don't trade it. And, uh, and it's become the biggest uh, stock in my portfolio by okay. far. Right. And it's all the house's money. Oh, fantastic. I've trimmed and trimmed. It's all the house's money. So um, my question is, do I, given the market, do I trim some more or do I just say it's the house's money and, and leave it be big? And, and the stock is? I can't tell you. Nicole wouldn't let me. Oh, you can't tell me. Oh, no problem. Okay, well, look, if you, if you played with the house's money, if you've made all the sales, the reason why that's been my philosophy all my life is that you never touch it again. You've won. You can't lose. It's the house's money. You let it run. Okay, this whole debt ceiling exercise shows you why investing so hard. I say the smartest thing is stay invested, but keep a nice chunk of cash to buy more into weakness. Oh, man, money tonight. We're continuing our hunt for opportunity by looking at three key sectors of the market, starting with semiconductors. We've seen the space make a strong comeback this year, but can the chips keep avoiding a dip? I'm finding out with on semi CEO. Then after roaring higher last year, the defense contractors have been awful performers in 2023. Of course, thanks to the debt ceiling crisis. But with the market heading higher today on hopes of a deal, what could it mean for the sector? And I'm giving you my take on big tech stock that once again is looking down after hours and that's the stock of Cisco. But what are its earnings really signaling? Why don't we wait and talk to the CEO fresh off the report? So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. We've seen a remarkable comeback in the semiconductor space this year, although some have come back a lot harder than others. 
Take on Semiconductor, long one of our favorites, the maker of power management and signal amplification chips, with a focus on the automotive and industrial markets, red hot. Here's a stock that's nearly doubled from last year's lows in just 10 months' time. At the beginning of the month, on Semi reported a magnificent quarter, excellent guidance, so good it sent the stock soaring 9% in a single session. And it just won't stop, thanks in part to a very bullish analyst and well-attended analyst day event yesterday, where management announced some incredibly encouraging long-term financial targets that we're going to get into. So can this stock keep climbing. Let's check in with Hassan El-Khori. Now, Hassan is the president and CEO of On Semi. You got to get a better read on things. Mr. El-Khori, welcome back to Man Money. Thank you. Thank you. It's great right. to be back. You have set out some goals that I don't think people realize are incredibly aggressive. Compound annual growth of 10 to 12 percent you're looking for for the next five years. Tell me how that's possible. Look, when, when we are targeting the sustainable ecosystem that I uh, presented yesterday, Vehicle electrification, electrification in the infrastructure to support the electrical vehicles. All of these are growing above 20%. So when you peg the whole company and you double down on these sectors with these mega trends, we will end up growing at 3x the market that you know is forecasted to grow at four. For us, it's 10 to 12 just by being more aligned to the sustainable ecosystem. And with that growth, you are talking about some margin improvement that I think is like the old days when Intel was the only game in town. You've got a fab right strategy. That's new to me. Not, I don't know that. So we, when we started this journey, we talked about fab lighter, right. which is really resizing our fab footprint. We've done that, mission accomplished. Fab right is now taking the existing, what we have, and making it right, meaning get the mix right in every fab to get the best products out at the right uh, cost targets. Because every fab is very different depending on what products you put in it. Some are better at 8 inch, some better at 12. That's the fab right, is getting everything where it belongs the right way. Now, uh, you must be doing it right because I talked to all the automakers and you were the one part of the problem that wasn't part of the problem. You always gave the auto companies what they needed. How are you capable, capable of meeting that demand? Looking back at the last two years, when we started this journey, auto and industrial was about 60% of our total revenue. Last reported quarter, we were 79%. We made hard choices to walk away and de-emphasize other markets to prioritize the auto and industrial because that is our strategy and that's how we're going forward. Well, look at the, you got, uh, I'm looking at these companies, NEO, everybody's crazy about NEO, but uh, you, you've got Volkswagen's one, just the, the largest, it's incredible. But then uh, Zeker, BMW, Mercedes-Benz, you've got all the marquee names. Premium business drives premium results and you got to play with the premium brands. All right, but wait a second. Tesla commented at one point not that long ago. A senior Tesla executive said the company at their analyst day that a new design for one of their future powertrains would use 75% fewer SIC chips than current models. Your stock took a hit. Did that made any sense at all that it took a hit? Uh, it made sense that it took a hit because of misunderstanding. Okay. But they it explained re- it to that's us. That's right. When they got it, it recovered and then some. And we got back and above where we were even when that came up. Right. Because if you think about what they said, 75% less, but it's a different platform. They're talking about a very accessible, price accessible vehicle, which means higher volume. That is not in the plans today, which is incremental for us. Okay. The other thing people don't realize is for on semi, we do silicon carbide and silicon power, IGBTs. We're the only company that has vertical integrated silicon carbide and IGBT, which means we can give an optimized solution for the customer on either one or together 
which we've been in production in, uh, for the last three years, and we're the only company who does a hybrid module with both technologies. And in you're it. doing that with longer-term agreements, so exactly. you know that the money's there for a long time. That's exactly it. That's the predictability of the results that we uh, we want to achieve. Well, how about the EVs, the the Fisker, Rivian, Tesla? The, the, the these are very very good companies, but they're very speculative. Well, t- Tesla's no longer speculative, but the other ones can they really? I mean, they need a lot of capital. They do, but for us, our focus is on having the technology, the future of EV technology, accessible to all of them. The market will decide, but for us, it's the level playing ground that we want to give everybody the technology and the innovation that we provide. We make it accessible to everybody. That's why we have a very broad geographical distribution and a customer distribution that also de-risks our long-term view of the market. Now, one of the things that's happened that's very exciting for me is, is that when we first had you on, the stock was uh, in the teens, and a lot of people didn't believe. I came away from the, with the impression, was like, holy cow, I think these set of assets are about to be turbocharged by you. How about now? What's the difference? you get a lot more people to come, come and listen to you? Right now, oversubscribe. You know, we had our analyst day yesterday, a room full of people. Tremendous energy. Not just, it's, it's more important for me, it's our, our teams and our, our worldwide team. Uh, a lot of them were with the company before I joined. Just the energy, the transformation, right. and that's what's going to carry that momentum. And that's, to be honest with you, it's, it's, it's very contagious, which is oh. great. And one last thing, I know that you're thinking about the future. Uh, Penn State has a remarkable engineering school and mat- does materials. You just uh, made a memorandum of understanding with them for $8 million strategic collaboration. What could that do out in year four, five, six? Looking at uh, how we look at our strategic uh, uh, view, you know, automotive industry, you're talking three to five years out. Well, what's beyond that? What is the next material? So that's where our our, uh, engagement with Penn State is very important, not just for uh, uh, R&D and for material uh, science for wide band gap, but also for us, it's important on the workforce planning that we need for the future that we are planning on, on heading towards. So it's a both. It's a technology and a workforce uh, well, training. Well, how right that is. I've heard way too many semiconductor companies use the exact same silicate, whatever material, and then they get passed by. And uh, you're not going to let that happen to you. No way. The, okay, that's Hassan Al-Khori. The company's on semi, symbol O, and he's the president CEO. I've liked this for years. I've liked him for years. Mad Money's back at me. Coming up, forget zone or man-to-man, Kramer's running a stock-to-stock defense. Next. After roaring higher last year, the defense contractors have been awful performers in 2023. That's not because the geopolitical situation has changed. The war in Ukraine is still raging. shows no signs of ending anytime soon. It's because of the debt ceiling crisis. Everybody's worried that any deal to solve the debt ceiling impasse would include major cuts to defense spending. Because that's what happened in 2011. Back then, the Democrats and Republicans knew ultimately they had to compromise on something. They compromised $2 trillion in deficit reduction over the following 10 years. The sequester, they called it. And that included taking a meat cleaver to the defense budget. In fact, I bet you didn't realize that but the defense budget didn't return to 2011 levels until 2020. So it's no wonder Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and Northrop Grumman 
They've seen their stocks get hit in recent months pretty terribly. If we end up with another round of across-the-board budget cuts like 2011, the whole industry is going to make less money. Plus, given that the defense contractors were up huge last year, mostly because of the Russia-Ukraine war, the shareholders here are eager to ring the register and protect their profits. Hey, make no mistake, nobody's selling the defense stocks in response to bad results because the results, they've been excellent. Lockheed Martin posted a huge bottom line beat a month ago with a much higher than expected backlog. The stock initially jumped in response, but since then it's given up all its gains and then some because nobody cares. Raytheon delivered a really impressive set of numbers three weeks ago and Northrop Grumman did just fine, even raised their full year earnings forecast again and again, though. The stocks just haven't been able to get any traction at all. I think that's a mistake. As I see it, people are way too terrified of what's going to happen with the debt ceiling negotiations. They assume it will be the end of the world for the defense contractors and the Pentagon gets hit with these big budget cuts. But it's simply not true. It's not. Just look at what happened in the years after 2011, when defense spending took a beating thanks to the Budget Control Act. By now, you definitely heard me tell you about the market's broader performance during the debt steal- ceiling sell-off in the summer of 2011. The S&P 500 plunged 19% from peak to trough in a matter of months. But in early 2012, it had erased all those losses and then some. All right, how about the defense stocks back then? When you look at Lockheed, Northrop Grumman, the old Raytheon, General Dynamics, and Huntington Ingalls, They all got hit extremely hard, as you can see, uh, during the debt ceiling meltdown. On average, these stocks plunged 31% from peak to trough. Lockheed held a best down just under 20%, basically in line with the SP 500, while the smaller Huntington Ingalls nearly got cut in half. But also like the rest of the market, the defense contractors rebounded like crazy. By the end of 2011, every one of them had made decent recoveries. Lockheed Martin jumped 22% from its lows through the end of the year. Northrop Grumman rallied almost 19%. The old Raytheon jumped 26%. General Dynamics gained 23%. Huntington Ingalls vaulted 38%. More importantly, when you look at how these defense stocks performed during the years when the defense budget was actually being cut, most of them significantly outperformed the S&P 500. It's counterintuitive, but it's what happened. I got the numbers. In 2012, Northrop Grumman, Lockheed, and Huntington Ingalls all trounced the S&P 500. From 2012 to 2014, Northrop Grumman was up 152%. Lockheed up 138%. General Dynamics, look at this. General Dynamics up 107%. Huntington Eagles worked, uh, Ingalls were 260%, all during a period where the S&P was up just 64%. Now, that's some outperformance. Yet, when you look at the actual data from the years of lower defense spending, it tells you that you want to be a buyer of the defense contractors if they keep getting hit on this still unseen debt ceiling of conclusion, especially the kind of sharp emotional sell-off we saw in 2011. Sure, there are differences between now and then. For example, it's not encouraging that there seems to be more Republicans who are looking to cut defense spending than any other time in recent memory. It used to be the more left-wing Democrats who wanted to slash the defense budget. Back in 2011, military spending was still sacrosanct, and it still got cut. So maybe the compromise this time ends up being worse for the military-industrial complex. Wouldn't that be something? But the other big difference from 2011 cuts in a much more bullish direction. Back then, we were still in Team America World Police mode. Our wealthy allies all thought that they were protected by the American national security umbrella. They couldn't imagine needing to defend themselves. So naturally, they didn't spend much on military hardware. That's no longer the case because we've now got a conventional land war going on in Europe. 
I think it'll be far more difficult to push through defense deep cuts in the defense budget at a time when Russia's openly hostile to the West. And we've got growing fears that China might take a swing at Taiwan, especially if the Russians end up getting away with their invasion of Ukraine. Believe me, they're watching. Remember, as I've explained before, much of the military aid we've been sending to Ukraine comes directly from the stockpiles of the United States and our allies. So then it needs to get backfilled in the coming years. That means much more spending by our government and our allies. Otherwise, we won't have the hardware we need to protect our, ourselves. So regardless of what happens with the debt ceiling negotiations, Russia's invasion of Ukraine will be a multi-year tailwind for the defense contractors, even if the war somehow ends tomorrow. We're going to have to spend a fortune just to rebuild our stockpiles. For example, this past weekend, Germany announced a new $3 billion in uh, package of military aid for Ukraine, including tanks, anti-aircraft systems, and ammunition. Not only is that a positive story for the Ukrainian military, it also represents future sales for the defense industry, as the Germans need to replace this stuff for their own use. And our debt ceiling negotiations have nothing to do with defense spending by our newly imperiled European allies. Please don't forget that the war in Ukraine is acting as a kind of proving ground for all sorts of new weapon systems. Think those shoulder-mounted Javelin missiles that helped the Ukrainians take out so many Russian tanks early on? That's a Lockheed Martin-Raytheon joint venture. Or how about Raytheon's latest Patriot missile system, which has reportedly been very effective at shooting down Russian missiles since arriving in country. Just yesterday, Ukraine's Patriot missile system defended Kyiv from a barrage of Russian missiles, including their widely touted hypersonic missiles which got knocked out of the sky like everything else because of a software adjustment by Raytheon. Amazing. You could argue the war in Ukraine is the best advertisement these companies have. I know that's a terrible way to put it. But in the end, these are indeed merchants of war we're talking about. At least this time, their products are being put to use for an unambiguously good cause. Here's the bottom line. If 2011's any guide thinks could get really bad for the defense stocks over the next couple of weeks as we get closer to the debt ceiling deadline and its conclusion... But again, based on history, as the defense contractors come down, if they still do, their stocks are worth buying. I think some are worth buying now. Even if we ultimately get a spending deal that includes a big hit to the defense budget like in 2011, the defense contractors can still beat the market. It happened before, and I bet it happens again. Let's go to Steve in Georgia. Steve. Yes, sir. Thanks, Jim. Hey, Steve. What's up? In 2021, I got excited about an aerospace design and small launch vehicle service called Rocket Lab. So I, I bought a few shares at, at $15. The price has basically been going down ever since. I, I have purchased a few more shares from time to time, but they're at four and a half today. Right. I, I, I still like what I read about the company, but I'm beginning to wonder if I'm wasting my time. I think that you, I know this is a critical judgment. But I do believe you are wasting your time. And the reason I say that is because no company that is losing money gets recommended on the show that is made of money. And Rocket Lab isn't making money. I prefer to see you in any I'd rather see you in a Raytheon Technologies, which is a very good company. whose stock is down a lot. But because it has a large dollar amount it's a handle, so to speak, in the 90s, people don't want to buy it. That's wrong. I'd rather buy one share of that than 10 shares of this. Let's go to Andrew in New York. Andrew. Hi, uh, Jim. How are you? I am good, Andrew. How about you? Good. Thank you for taking the time to have me on your show. I'm thrilled that you're calling. Um, So I wanted to ask you um, about Boeing. And when do you think it will return to pre-COVID levels of demand for airliners? All right. You raised an interesting question. I'll tell you. The answer is 
that it already has when it comes to demand. The problem is the supply or making them, and they keep having problems. Now, I will tell you that Phil LeBeau, who follows it very closely, has really, I think, explained a lot of it to us. Things are getting better at Boeing. Why are we not buying Boeing for our travel trust? As I told club members today in our club call, we prefer Honeywell. Why? Consistency. And you get the cockpits from both Airbus and Boeing. Honeywell is the way to go. I told the club, and I'm telling you, look, if 2011 is anybody's guy, as the defense contractors come down, and they have been, I think their stocks are pretty simple. Much more mad money ahead, including, how about this debt ceiling standoff? It's beginning to reverberate in Silicon Valley. As worries over tech spending hangs over tech companies, I'm sitting down with the CEO of Cisco after earnings to find out what he is seeing. Then I'm giving you my take on some of the wildest answers we got from Elon Musk in his wide-ranging interview with my friend, colleague, and partner, David Faber, last night. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. these results that Cisco reported after the close. The networking kingpin with a software and security kicker has been struggling for a little bit. By the time they got their supply chain in order post-COVID and the European and Chinese economies come back to life, investors started worrying that Cisco is really living off its backlog. Once the backlog runs out, people say, well, you know what? We're going to start seeking weaker sales and earnings, and that will reflect the true situation. I'm not so sure. I'm worried, though, that the Bears did get some extra ammunition tonight. While Cisco delivered a nice bottom and top line beat, strongest ever revenue and operating cash flow, even raising their full year sales and earnings forecast, the stock sold down during the conference call. And then, well, it was because of a one line. It was a line about product order decline of 23%. That's a lot. We know, but we got to find out more about it. Cisco's not taking this thing line down. They think they can return to growth next year, and they're substantially raising the buyback. But the stock remains a battleground. So let's go straight to the source with Chuck Robbins, the chairman and CEO of Cisco, to learn more. Mr. Robbins, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, Jim, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you today. Uh, Thank you for coming on, Chuck. I I just kind of laid it out as being that there's so much good here. I love operating cash flow being at records, revenue being great. It's so clear that Cisco's doing well, but you did. Let's go right to it. Give a... uh, what a lot of people felt was just a downbeat number about uh, about orders, and we got to solve that before people say, you know what, at 45, 46, I want to buy the stock. Yeah, Jim, thank you for that. Uh, look, we talked about several quarters back, we talked about uh, our re- order growth at the time. Uh, it was in the 30s and up, upwards of 30% on any, in any given quarter. And we actually said at some point, you know, today our revenue is running lower than our bookings and our order rate. And at some point in the future, our revenues will begin to exceed and our order rate will be much lower. And that's where we are. There are three factors that are happening. Number one, our customers are digesting all the shipments that we're sending to them right now. So they're busy implementing the technology that they've ordered. The second is our lead time normalization. So our lead times have come down 40% in the last two quarters. So that's, effect, that's reducing the need for our customers to place these long 
the, you know, outbound orders, you know, that they need a year from now. And the third is obviously the macro situation. So from a sequential perspective, from Q2 to Q3, we didn't see any real shift in demand momentum from our customers, and we don't see any as we enter the next quarter. So we'll see how it goes, but it's not uh, too unanticipated and not too much of a surprise to us. Well, I think what's difficult, Chuck, is, is that I know you described it plain and simple. I remember exactly what you said. You were right here talking to me. And yet I think it's still hard for people to understand that you actually are saying that there could be this order decline that's expected. It always seems so unexpected. When will we get off kind of a roller coaster and just more toward the steady old Cisco that I know you can give us? Well, I think we, we need to deliver very consistently, which we've done. Uh, if you go back to September of 21, we did an analyst conference and we said, over the long term, we're going to grow revenue 5 to 7% and earnings per share 5 to 7%. When we exit FY24, based on what we know today, we'll be in that range on the revenue front and we'll be above that range on the earnings per share front. So we've actually delivered what we said we would deliver. Obviously, the pandemic changed sort of how the linearity worked there, but we had positive growth last year. We grew double digits this year, and we'll see positive growth again next year. So I'm proud of what the teams are doing. All right, so let's go a little uh, 30,000 square feet, 30,000 feet high. And this is why I want to do this. See, I think, Chuck, we're, we're two in the weeds here with each quarter. You have some very fundamental things that are going for you. And I think if we talk about those, then people realize that tomorrow at $45, you're getting a great opportunity to buy Cisco. Well, first of all, if you think about all the things that our customers are working on, they're re-architecting for this multi-cloud environment. They're all trying to deal with hybrid work. They're re-architecting applications. They're dealing with cybersecurity in this new distributed world. They're all focused on sustainability. And these are all areas that our technology plays an incredibly important role. But then the, the topic that everyone's talking about right now, artificial intelligence or AI, uh, in the web scale space, this infrastructure that's gonna be built out for AI is so exciting. And if you look back almost a decade ago when the first wave of the cloud build out began, we were admittedly, uh, we were left out of that because we didn't have the right technology. I would say today we already have design wins. We're already running the infrastructure, the networking infrastructure for some of these large language models. And I think we're better positioned than anybody else to actually take advantage of this over the next five to seven years in a market that's going to be billions growing 40% annually. So we're pretty excited about all the opportunities. All right, so you know I like this stock of NVIDIA. I like the company. They've got all these cards and they're giant amount of computing power and they sit somewhere and they're obviously not sitting on top of what the where the client is. Where does Cisco fit in between all that computational power, the generative AI, and the actual customer? Well, you need to connect all of the, the GPUs, and today they're connected by a technology called InfiniBand. But in the future, the, the customers want to move to Ethernet, and then they want to move to something called a scheduled fabric or Ethernet Plus. And those are two technology areas that we are leading the market with. And so we think as they make that transition, which we're already seeing them do, and we're seeing them want to move to these new types of infrastructure, that's where we play, and that's where we've already won some design wins, so we're pretty excited about right, that. All right, so the design wins are from what, the customers themselves? Because I think it's these service providers that always seem to get in the way. Are they back as being a, the fulcrum of your orders? Well, this, these are the web scale players. They're building out these AI, this AI infrastructure, these, all of the GPUs they need to put in to actually process these large language models, that has to be connected with networking, and that's where we play. Well, to me, that would mean if I were you, I'd be buying a lot of stock back now when people come to realize that where you play, the stock should be higher. Well, if you think about the three things we talked about, Jim, we committed to 
you know, modest growth in FY24, given that we grew double digits this year, but we also said we're going to grow earnings per share faster than we're going to grow revenue, and we're going to increase our buyback in line with what we've done the last couple of quarters. I think we did $1.3 billion this quarter, and we're going to do that much more consistently over the next coming quarters. So I think uh, we may be thinking the same thing that you're thinking. All right, and then the last thing I need to uh, think about is this term living off the backlog. Totally confuses a lot of our viewers. Can you explain why that's not the way to look at Cisco? Well, the irony is, is that it's almost like people believe the backlog just showed up. <laughs> These were this this was demand that our customers placed orders against, and they were ordering ahead because of our extended lead times, and now they're digesting that technology. What it says is for us to have the backlog the size we have it today says that our customers love the technology, it's in demand, and now they're actually just implementing it. So, you know, we, we're going to end the year with a backlog that's still double what we would normally have at the end of any given year. We have $32 billion in RPO. We have $24 billion in ARR. And so we have a reasonable amount of visibility to, uh, to the next 12 to 15 months. And so it's, um, it's something that we're working through, but it's reflective of the customer's desire for our technology. Okay, I think we leave it there. It makes a ton of sense to me. I hope it does to you. Chuck Robbins, Chair and CEO of Cisco. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you, Jim. Man, might be back after the break. Coming up, what's in your mind, America? Give us a call. The lightning round is storming the NYSE. Next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Time for the light round. I'm going to start with Josh in California. Josh. Hi, Mr. Kramer. I'm a college student trying to add in my portfolio. I was going to ask you about C3AI, but after the interview with Tesla, what do you think about adding Tesla to my portfolio? I would say absolutely yes. I would add Tesla. I'm going to add Tesla and Faber. I'm giving you a twosome. Let's go to Mark in Iowa. Mark. Hey, Jim. First of all, a big thank you to Jeff and yourself for a good meeting today. Oh, thank you. Jeff is so good. He introduced a great new name. How can I help you? Well, what would you recommend for people that are being offered $25 a share cash plus two-thirds of a share of One Oak for their Magellan Midstream Partnership? Okay, so I'm talking with Jeff. We sit next to each other, and I would say, you know what, Jeff? This One Oak looks darn good. And Jeff reminded me we don't really care for those pipeline companies. So I say take the money and stock and run. And thank you for the kind words about our club meeting. Let's go to Dave in Illinois. Dave! Dr. Kramer, today is Wednesday. It's anything that can happen day at the old Mickey Mouse Club. How are you, my mad friend? I am doing so well. And, Dave, I've got to tell you, I'm trying to arrange another trip to Chicago coming up. But I want to do it before it turns minus five. What's happening? Sounds good. Jim, earlier this month, this manufacturer and seller of diagnostic products reported a monster quarter. So, Jim, let's revisit Lanthius Holdings. Oh, you know, I love these medical device companies. You come to me with such great ideas, David. You know what? The answer is yes, and I know it's run a lot, but when you get them in the sweet spot like that, they're not going to be done. Great call by you. Great call. Let's go to Rick in Pennsylvania, please. Rick. Hey, what's up, Jen? This is Rick from the other side of Pennsylvania. Well, well the wrong side, but that's okay, because there are two sides of every story. What's going on? Yeah, buddy. Hey, um, I wanted to ask you about a company here. 
It's a uh, semiconductor company, and um, they had an okay earnings this year or this last quarter, and their uh, their moving averages are all lining up real nice. Looks like they could have a breakout. Um, the only problem is they're in Taiwan. Uh, I'm talking about HIMAX, H-I-M-X. You know what? You said it. You answered the question. The only problem is in Taiwan. I, I don't want the risk. And I, look, I listened to Elon Musk last night, and I'm going to be addressing the question about what happens in Taiwan, but I don't need that headache on top of the headache of owning a semiconductor stock that just advanced too much. Now we're going to Frank in New York. Frank. Frank, booyah, Jim. Good to talk to you. Same. Uh, right back at you. I, I'm in the house of pain big time, Jim. I bought this stock. I thought they were in the right area, energy storage. And I think even you liked it at one point in time. STEM. What am I doing with this Oh, my stock? God. STEM. They just, look, because they blew it. Hey, listen. They just blew it. They did not deliver. And that's what happens periodically. And it's such a bummer. And I am sorry. And that, ladies and gentlemen, conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, there were insights aplenty when David Faber went tete-a-tete with Elon Musk. Kramer focuses on the elephant out east. Next. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. I've been in those interviews where I said something and the nothing said was then the the mic's ripped off and you just say, oh, darn, I didn't mean to go there. No, he was so thoughtful, damn it. Just he, he pauses to think. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. Do you think, for example, China will will make a move to take control of Taiwan? The official the official, the official policy of China is uh, that um, Taiwan should be integrated. Mm-hmm. One does not need to read between the lines. One can simply read the lines. There was so much to learn from David Faber's incredible interview with Elon Musk, but for the moment, I want to discuss the focus on their discussion about Taiwan, because Taiwan manufactures a huge chunk of the world's semiconductors. These days, we put chips in everything. So if China ever invades Taiwan, the whole global economy's got a problem. And Musk makes a great point. The stated policy of the Chinese government is they want to take Taiwan back to the extent it ever belonged to them in the first place. So what do you need to know here? First, our government's acutely aware of how China could hold us hostage economically if it makes a move on Taiwan. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo has been really focused on this issue. It's why she worked so hard to pass the CHIPS Act. We need more domestic semiconductor manufacturing capacity, even if it's much more expensive here, because Taiwan's just too vulnerable. Second, lately our government has embraced Taiwan like never before. It's Oh, it's been a tortured path. When the Communist Party took power in 1949, the previous regime fled to Taiwan and set up a sort of government in exile. That's why Taiwan's officially known as the Republic of China. And our government recognized them as the real China until 1979. Throughout this whole period, the People's Republic of China, you know, the actual China, has been committed to reunification by force if necessary. For decades, the rest of the world just kind of pretended this wasn't a problem, largely because China didn't have the ability to do anything about it. But now China has something like a real navy 
and something like a real Air Force, too. Meanwhile, Taiwan's become increasingly important to the global economy thanks to the vast semiconductor industry. Unfortunately, the Chinese government has been unwilling to be deterred. For instance, President Obama met with President Xi back in September of 2015 at the Rose Garden, and it seemed like it came to a kind of an understanding that the U.S. would defend Taiwan with our military if necessary. But almost immediately after that, China began a campaign of naval maneuvers that made it clear that they were still gunning for the island. According to multiple sources, President Trump called Xi and made it clear nuclear weapons would be on the table if China made any move against Taiwan, and that's a sanitized version. You don't need my multi-year celebrity apprentice experience to know that Trump's no fan of the Chinese government. Things definitely hardened during his administration. But incredibly, things have only gotten harder under Biden as China keeps harassing Taiwan with flyovers and cyber attacks. Of late, both Nancy Pelosi and current Speaker Kevin McCarthy have visited Taiwan, which in itself is a major escalation from our our government's old policy of strategic ambiguity. No visits. And now we have special forces training teams on the ground advising the Taiwanese on air defense, logistics and defensive barriers. It's more than we're doing for Ukraine. It's similar to what we've done for South Korea. And that's a gigantic departure from even Obama's sea defense policy. I think it's a positive development because Taiwan makes the bulk of our semiconductors. We can't afford to let it be threatened. I mention all of this because Elon Musk's comments carry a great deal of weight with everyone, including our own government, which should make people more confident that there's an alternative to the American government gradually ceding its superpower status to China, which is what happens if we do nothing and let them snap up the shining democracy and defense powerhouse that is the small state of Taiwan. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise you I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. Last call starts now. All opinions expressed by Jim Cramer on this podcast are solely Cramer's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by Cramer on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Jim Cramer as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. Cramer's opinions are based upon information he considers reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warn its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Mad Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Mad Money Disclaimer.